Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a series of podcasts presented by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. In this episode, Mark Wilson talks about the Brooklyn Navy Yard. While fewer and fewer New Yorkers remember this once giant piece of the city's economy, this formerly government-owned facility employed 70,000 people at its height during the early 1940s, building and repairing many of the warships that enabled the Allies to prevail over the Axis. It served a similar function for the Union during the Civil War. But its story began with the very founding of the nation, as Wilson, a leading historian of the military, argues here. Brooklyn was perhaps the most important of the six naval yards established by Thomas Jefferson's administration on the British and French models. But this fact speaks to a much bigger story, popularly denied by fans of defense contracting today, about the central role that government military production played in U.S. history. Although the debate over whether to let private businesses handle national security dates to the early republic, the privatization of the U.S. military picked up speed only in the late Eisenhower years, accelerated under JFK and LBJ. That ultimately spelled the end of the Brooklyn Navy Yard. But as Wilson explains here, it might well have survived as it did earlier close calls, if not for arbitrary and unusual circumstances. For more podcasts like this, and for more Gotham Center programming, visit us at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list. Thanks for listening. I first came across the Brooklyn Navy Yard in the 1990s when I was working on my first book about the North's economic mobilization for the Civil War. But I didn't start to fully appreciate it until a weekend family trip six years ago to Wilmington, North Carolina. Wilmington's home to the battleship North Carolina, a massive World War II-era vessel now serving as a tourist attraction. Like other visitors, my family was awed by its scale. A 728-foot-long ship weighing 36,000 tons, once home to 2,300 sailors who participated in many fearsome World War II actions in the Pacific. Although most visitors are focused on this battleship's size and its combat record, anyone who reads the displays in Wilmington will also learn something perhaps unexpected about the ship's origins. The North Carolina was built in New York City at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, a Navy-owned, Navy-operated shipyard, now long decommissioned. Established in the early 1800s, It was by many measures the most important naval shipyard in the United States from the mid-19th century through the end of World War II. As we consider the record and broader significance of the Brooklyn Navy Yard, let's begin at the busiest point in its history during the latter part of World War II. By then, the yard sat on nearly 300 acres in the northeastern part of Brooklyn between the Manhattan and Williamsburg bridges. It ranked as a small city in its own right with its own police force, fire station, power plants, and telephone system. It operated 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It was home to as many as 70,000 employees spread across three shifts, many of whom commuted on a steady stream of city buses. The yard included 300 buildings, two shipways, seven dry docks, eight large cafeterias, 24 miles of railroad track, and more than five miles of paved road. For the thousands of riveters, welders, painters, and machinists, building battleships and aircraft carriers and repairing hundreds of smaller vessels, it was a place at once exciting and challenging, overwhelming and dangerous. One yard employee recalled it as a sort of Dante's Inferno, imagery that fits with the vivid descriptions in Jennifer Egan's 2017 novel Manhattan Beach, whose main character is, quote, always shocked by the roar of the yard, the crane and truck and train engines, the caterwaul of steel being cut and chipped, of men hollering, and the stench of coal and oil. During World War II, Brooklyn's Navy Yard ranked as one of the biggest and busiest shipyards in the world. 
this was the most dramatic chapter in its long history. Today, it's a very different kind of place, a quieter, mixed-use retail and manufacturing space. Back then, it was not only one of the most important industrial sites in New York City, but one of the key pieces in America's military-industrial complex. So as we think about this dramatic change in one corner of Brooklyn, it's natural to ask, when and why did that transition from military to commercial space happen? I'll address this later. But there's another set of questions equally interesting. Why did the yard exist in the first place? And how did it endure? Because if we have in mind conventional accounts of American capitalism and national defense, Brooklyn's Navy Yard's puzzling. Why do we find a government-owned, government-run shipyard at the very center of a system that we're told has long relied on private corporations, defense contractors, for this public purpose? Today, our military relies primarily and increasingly on private firms for logistics and equipment. The government even hires private contractors for tasks such as military training and security services. So from this perspective, Brooklyn Navy Yard may appear to be some kind of bizarre outlier. But in fact, it, and other places like it, need to be understood as part of an important, if poorly remembered, element in the history of the military-industrial complex. As I'll suggest over the next few minutes, that history helps us remember that for the most part, the business of defense was not entrusted wholly to private industry, but also included more public, socialized elements. Namely, in this case, a large set of military-run industrial sites. In other words, by thinking about the Brooklyn Navy Yard, we may not only learn more about the history of New York City, but also about the broader fabric of American history over the last two centuries. To start our survey, we need to go back over 200 years. In 1801, under Jefferson's presidency, the government started to acquire the land that would become the Brooklyn Navy Yard. It made similar arrangements elsewhere, as it created a set of six government-owned and operated naval shipyards at sites up and down the Atlantic coast. Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Boston, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and Norfolk, Virginia. Here, at the beginning of the story, we have one answer to the puzzle of how to explain the existence of a government shipyard in a military-industrial complex we normally think about as based on for-profit industry. The Brooklyn Navy Yard that launched immense battleships and carriers in World War II owed its existence to decisions made in the earliest days of the Republic. At that moment, Congress and military policymakers could have insisted on having all naval shipbuilding done in private yards, but there were at least two reasons for choosing the public option. First, in a new nation, just recovering from the economically devastating American Revolution, private capital was still scarce, particularly when it came to open-ended ventures with uncertain levels of demand. Second, as elites looked around the world for models of warship building, they saw that great powers like Britain and France used government-owned naval dockyards, many of them dating from the 15th and 16th centuries. So by creating naval shipyards, and also public arsenals and armories for the army, Congress was merely following what seemed to be global best practices, time-tested traditions. Brooklyn's Navy Yard, like the others, took shape around the War of 1812, which seemed to confirm Congress's wisdom in paying for military installations. The first buildings had gone up in 1805 and 1806. During the war, the Brooklyn Yard helped outfit dozens of ships for military service. But its first major achievement in new shipbuilding occurred afterward. In 1820, Brooklyn launched its first warship, the massive USS Ohio, a 2,700-ton sailing ship equipped with six dozen guns. Others followed, including in the 1830s, the Fulton II, the Navy's second steam-powered warship, and the Missouri, a 3,000-ton frigate. And in 1857, the giant 5,500-ton Niagara, which helped lay the first telegraph cables across the Atlantic Ocean. 
By the 1850s, the yard had become a large, multifunctional site, one of the most important installations of the U.S. Navy, and a major tourist attraction. Antebellum journalists described it as a place of cleanliness and order, especially in comparison to the surrounding neighborhood, but also a place where visitors experienced a, quote, bewildering and astonishing array of sights, sounds, and smells. Crowds flocked to see ships at docks and under construction. Others visited friends and family serving aboard them, including hundreds of sailors in training. The yard was also home to a large marine hospital, providing medical care for the disabled, and the Naval Lyceum, an important antebellum institute of science and education founded by naval officers, which included a library and a museum. Visitors walked among old naval guns, piles of cannonballs, and several large buildings, including big warehouses and a four-story machine shop. They heard the clangs of 50 blacksmiths' furnaces and watched some 800 men working on various aspects of shipbuilding and repair. The yard was able to complete complex ship repairs thanks to its giant world-class dry dock built in the 1840s. 300 feet long, lined with massive granite blocks, it lay 28 feet below the East River's surface at high tide. This allowed ships to float into the dock area, which was then closed off and drained. The main engine for pumping water out of the dock, a 500-horsepower machine with a driving wheel measuring 25 feet across, was itself a major tourist attraction. By the eve of the Civil War, then, Brooklyn's Navy Yard was a busy and important installation, most obviously as a center for ship repair and new construction. But at this very moment, the yard found its legitimacy called into question when congressional investigators and the press began to describe it as a hotbed of corruption. By 1858, the yard counted more than 2,000 employees. According to its critics, most of these workers owed their positions to patronage. As the historian Kurt Hackamer has documented, Democratic politicians had asserted more and more control over the hiring of ordinary workers at the yard, especially after 1853, during the administrations of Franklin Pierce and James Buchanan. According to congressional investigators and journalists, if you wanted a job as a carpenter or mechanic, you most likely had to be recognized by the local Democratic machine as a certified party voter. This wasn't abnormal for the times. It was just one piece of a broader pattern of corruption, hardly exclusive to New York City, but still notoriously associated with the rise of Tammany Hall and urban immigrant political machines. However, it threatened to cause serious harm to the Brooklyn Yard and, by extension, raise questions about whether government-owned and run naval shipyards should even deserve to survive. The corruption scandal led to hundreds of layoffs at the end of the 1850s as naval officers attempted to regain more control over hiring. Employment continued to be influenced by the spoil system into the early 1890s at least. But over time, civil service reforms allowed the Navy to regain enough power to stop the practice of mass firings and hirings linked to party affiliations. Despite these scandals, the Brooklyn Yard, and Navy shipyards more generally, stood at the center of the naval industrial complex. During the Civil War, the number of workers at the Brooklyn Yard jumped by a factor of five from about 1,200 in 1860 to 6,000 or 7,000 employees by 1864 and 65. During these years, it became far busier than it had ever been before, building and launching 14 new large ships, including both sailing ships and large paddlewheel steamers. It also modified several hundred commercial vessels for military service. Brooklyn was the biggest of all the naval shipyards, which together built about a quarter of all the new warships constructed in the Civil War North, with the rest being built in private yards. Meanwhile, the public yards continued to be centers for ship modification and repair. This was demonstrated by Brooklyn's role in the completion of the Navy's first ironclad ship, the USS Monitor. Built at the nearby Continental Ironworks, 
The Monitor had its guns installed and other finishing touches done at the Brooklyn Yard, where it was commissioned in early 1862. But although the yard served as one of the most important pieces in the Union's mobilization for the Civil War, it soon faced extinction. In early 1870, Henry Warner Slocum, the former Army General then representing Brooklyn in the U.S. House, sponsored a bill in Congress that called for the site to be sold, and its operations moved to a different location, such as New London, Connecticut. In the view of Slocum and other proponents of the sale, this moment of post-war retrenchment was the right one for transforming the military site into civilian property. Among the advantages of this change, they argued, were that the property could be commercially developed, advancing the prosperity of the region, and, significantly, allowing the property to be taxed by local authorities. As they considered this proposition, New Yorkers and members of Congress faced a dilemma that would become increasingly commonplace across the military-industrial complex for many decades to come. Was it preferable to retain the military installation to keep the hundreds or thousands of well-paying jobs it provided, even though it was exempt from local taxes? Or did it make more sense to use the site for commercial purposes, potentially offering nearly as many jobs in the long run and contributing to local government revenues? In early 1870, as Slocum's bill was considered by Congress, many New Yorkers assumed that the yard's closure was a done deal. But the proposal generated strong opposition, not least from hundreds of Slocum's own constituents, who weren't eager to lose their jobs. Other local opponents predicted a closing would hurt local businesses and drive down property values and would create a costly burden for Brooklyn, which would have to sink millions of dollars into redeveloping the site. Opponents cited reasons of national security, too, suggesting it would be hard to reproduce elsewhere the expertise and capacities that had been built up in Brooklyn over half a century. In the end, to the surprise of many, Slocum's bill failed and the Navy Yard remained open. In the coming decades, proposals to close it would reappear at regular intervals, but it would be almost a century before it faced a threat to its survival equally serious to the one that had come in 1870. Having weathered that storm, the yard proceeded, in fact, to become bigger and more important than ever. This is often overlooked, even by expert historians, who've tended to emphasize that the new Navy, constructed in the age of Teddy Roosevelt, was the creation of private steel corporations and shipyards. This narrative fails to do enough to recognize that the Progressive Era included progressive military-industrial developments, including major public investments in government-owned and operated weapons facilities, such as Brooklyn. Even before World War I, the Brooklyn Yard had already become a modernized, multifunctional shipbuilding facility, which was a major contributor to the making of the new Steel Navy. That new Navy, launched at the very end of the 19th century, is often connected to the achievements of some of the nation's greatest privately owned for-profit shipyards, including William Cramp & Sons, Newport News Shipbuilding, Four River Shipbuilding, and the New York Shipbuilding Corporation. These private yards were important, to be sure. But so too was the Brooklyn Yard and some of its sister naval shipyards, such as Norfolk and Philadelphia. In fact, we should remember naval shipbuilding during the Progressive Era as an enterprise that was deliberately divided between public and private yards by the Navy and Congress, and one in which both sides openly raced each other to finish ships in the same class. During this era, Brooklyn built one of the best-remembered new steel ships, the USS Maine, an armored cruiser or light battleship commissioned in 1895. As many American schoolchildren still learn, the explosion of the Maine and the harbor at Havana, Cuba, contributed to the Spanish-American War. But the Maine explosion, now generally understood to be an accident, didn't prevent the Brooklyn Yard from continuing to play a major role in the building of the new steel navy. Brooklyn built a second-generation steel battleship, the USS Connecticut, in 1904, 
It served as the flagship of the Navy's so-called Great White Fleet tour of the world in 1907. And five years later, Brooklyn launched the 27,000-ton battleship New York, then the biggest in the American fleet. During World War I, Brooklyn would finish three even larger battleships, the Arizona, the New Mexico, and the Tennessee. It was scheduled to build two more, but these were scrapped only half-built, in accordance with the terms of the post-war International Naval Treaty. During this period, as it built several giant new battleships and continued to serve as an important site for repair, Brooklyn became an even larger and more multifunctional Navy Yard. As one reporter wrote in 1889, quote, the cries of officers to their men, the grind of great hawsers through swaying blocks of stout linked chains through hawse pipes, the clank, clank, clank of lagging pawls around a windlass, the shrill piping of a boatswain in the tops, the blare of a bugle, and the never-ceasing rap-bang, rap-bang of hammer and sledge assail the ear on every hand. A decade later, in 1898, another reporter proclaimed that Brooklyn was not only the most important of the naval shipyards, but one of the country's leading tourist attractions, seen by as many as 50,000 visitors per day. Visitors could wander around a 200-acre site, now featuring three large dry docks, electrical plants, machine shops, paint shops, a foundry, a sawmill, a sail loft, a marine barracks, a five-story prison, and a clothing factory. At this time, the yard had about 4,000 employees. Outside the yard, there were tough working-class neighborhoods featuring plenty of taverns, tobacco shops, and brothels. To be sure, we shouldn't overlook the fact that many key components in the new ships built at the yard, including the steel plates, boilers, and engines, were purchased from private contractors, including some big corporations like Bethlehem Steel and Westinghouse. To some extent, new construction at Brooklyn was about the putting together of contracted components, but the contributions on the public side were really more considerable than this. Many of the guns installed were built by the Navy's own in-house gunworks in Washington. At Brooklyn, yard workers didn't only put together the steel plate, but also built some of the sophisticated machinery that went into the ship. As the historian Thomas Heinrich has explained, Brooklyn also served for several decades as a center of ship design, with its own large drafting rooms, where Navy-employed ship architects created the original drawings used to build the ships. Beyond this, it was a leader in ship repairs and overhauls, which were no less important to the condition of the fleet, and in many years more expensive in dollar terms, than the new construction. During World War I, Brooklyn and its sister yards saw further expansion, a development that may seem obvious, but in fact was driven not just organically by the war, but by conscious political choice. Before the war, the Taft administration had proposed consolidating the public yards, and possibly shutting down Brooklyn, claiming that private companies built ships cheaper citing Britain's fully privatized shipbuilding complex as a model. This proposal was resisted successfully by the New York congressional delegation, then easily the largest in the nation, with support from a broad progressive coalition in Congress, which sought to check the power of the private defense sector. Under Wilson's presidency, this progressive thrust became more important. Wilson's secretary of the Navy did his best to increase the capacities of Brooklyn and the other yards while reducing the Navy's dependence on private suppliers. During World War I, the Navy invested millions in upgrading and expanding the facilities at Brooklyn and other yards. Brooklyn continued to work on the giant battleships, even as it was swamped with a flood of new repair and overhaul work. By 1918, its workforce had swelled to 18,000 people, triple its previous peak back during the Civil War. By this time, many of the workers belonged to craft unions, mostly affiliated with the American Federation of Labor. Because the yard was a federal facility, these unions had limited ability to bargain and no formal right to strike. 
The National Craft Unions and the AFL treated them gingerly, often organizing them into special employee districts. Nevertheless, they became important vehicles for yard workers to express grievances and negotiate working conditions, as well as leading advocates for keeping the facility alive. The 1920s and 30s, a time of military retrenchment, arms control treaties, and depression, were lean years for Brooklyn and all the other shipyards, public or private. There were more rumors of plans to close it down, but New York's congressional delegation, the unions, and even the Brooklyn Chamber of Commerce worked successfully to prevent this. Still, the number of workers at the yard declined to a skeleton crew, as few as 2,500. Recovery didn't wait until World War II, but started in the mid-1930s, thanks to the New Deal and significant naval rearmament, led by FDR, an enthusiastic proponent of the Navy. An influx of new funding revived the yard, which by 1936 already counted 8,000 employees. In 1937, Brooklyn received another boost from the Roosevelt administration during the competition for the construction of two next-generation battleships, the North Carolina class. Although several private yards bid for those contracts, the administration was struggling with the private companies over labor practices. In the end, the government awarded not one but both of the two new battleships to public yards. Brooklyn was chosen to build the North Carolina, the ship mentioned at the start of this podcast. This award meant that by the late 1930s, Brooklyn was already running full steam. By the outbreak of World War II in Europe in fall of 1939, employment stood at 11,000, with the yard running day and night. During World War II, as suggested earlier, the level of activity at the site was entirely unprecedented, with a peak workforce by 1944 of around 70,000 men and women. The installation had more than three times as many employees as during World War I. Its population also became more diverse. By the end of the war, as the historian Arnold Sparr has shown, there were close to 5,000 women working at the site, some of them in clerical jobs, but others in roles previously reserved for men, including as welders, truck drivers, and electricians. Still, gender discrimination remained powerful, as did white supremacy. African-American men, like all women, were generally limited to the lowest wage jobs. By 1944, there was still not a single African-American foreman on the site, nor were women and people of color helped much by the craft unions, which generally remained patriarchal and white supremacist. Meanwhile, all workers at the site were confronted with a variety of environmental hazards, from dangerous machinery to asbestos, offering short-term and long-term threats to their welfare and health. Despite these conditions, workers built two giant new battleships, two large aircraft carriers, and eight large tank landing ships, along with repairing and converting hundreds of other vessels. As the historians Ellen Snyder Grenier and Rebecca Jacobs have observed, Many of the men and women who worked at the yard during World War II recalled their time there with ambivalence, a combination of pride and patriotism, but also unsentimental memories of considerable hardships, inequities, and dangers. After the war, the Navy Yard became less busy, but for two decades remained an important piece of the American naval industrial complex and of New York City's economy. During the 1950s, Brooklyn built three immense new aircraft carriers, the Saratoga, the Independence, and the Constellation. In the early 60s, it started work on eight smaller ships for the Marine Corps. By that time, it was still the biggest of the nation's now 11 Navy-run shipyards, with nearly 13,000 employees. And altogether, the installation was worth an estimated $1 billion. Around the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962, Fortune magazine predicted that the Cold War would continue to generate plenty of work for both private and public shipyards. 
So that despite the usual calls to close or consolidate the public yards at Brooklyn, quote, the situation is likely to remain pretty much as it is. But in fact, the Brooklyn Yard had only a few months left to live. The Cold War shifted the military away from in-house production, both as a pragmatic response to excess capacity in aging installations and the result of an ideological campaign to push the Pentagon to embrace privatization. This was evident in the reports of two governmental reorganization commissions headed up by Herbert Hoover, the former president. For Hoover and other early Cold War champions of free enterprise, the public yards represented an insult to capitalism. Eisenhower's administration took the first steps toward more privatization, reducing the contracts going to public yards and signing special orders, proclaiming that the public interest demanded the bypassing of a standing 1930s law requiring half the major warships be built in public yards. Under President John F. Kennedy, the trend continued. His formidable Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara, was a former Harvard Business School professor and Ford Motor Company executive who came in believing that the Navy didn't need its 11 in-house shipyards. McNamara's Pentagon, urged on by the private shipbuilding lobby, undertook several studies of shipbuilding costs, which concluded that new construction, if not repair work, was more expensive in the public yards, mostly because they offered their workers higher wages and better benefits. By 1963, it was becoming obvious that one or more of the big naval shipyards would be closed. But which? And why might it be Brooklyn, ultimately, instead of another? The answer seems to be that the choice was somewhat arbitrary and might easily have gone the other way. In December 1963, not long after JFK's assassination, McNamara suggested to Congress that naval shipyards be closed in Boston, Philadelphia, Portsmouth, and San Francisco, but not Brooklyn. But facing protests from dozens of members of Congress, McNamara backtracked, saying further study would be needed. He and President Johnson agreed that no decision would be announced until after the next elections. For naval yard communities in Brooklyn and elsewhere in early 1964, the ensuing uncertainty created tremendous stress and inspired political mobilization. Brooklyn workers and their allies, like their counterparts in other naval shipyard and army arsenal communities, flooded the White House and Congress with petitions to preserve their installations and their jobs. At this time, the yard still had about 11,000 employees, about half of whom lived in Brooklyn and over a quarter in Queens. Their wages, along with other Navy outlays in Brooklyn, contributed an estimated quarter billion dollars a year to the New York economy. As the Brooklyn workers and their allies mobilized, one of the leaders of the effort was the Metal Trades Council, an umbrella organization for 26 different unions at the yard, which had recently been recognized by the government as the Brooklyn workers' sole authorized bargaining agent. Led by the Metal Trades Council and other local organizations, Brooklyn workers and their allies rallied to save their yard. In April 1964, more than 3,000 people participated in a march across the Brooklyn Bridge. In June, another group of 3,000, carrying a petition with half a million signatures, piled into a fleet of 75 buses and rode to Washington to meet with members of Congress, where they complained about recent big contracts given to the private Newport News Yard, part of a larger pattern of alleged discrimination in favor of the South and in favor of for-profit companies. The protests continued into the presidential campaign as Brooklyn Yard supporters organized a rally at Madison Square Garden, attracting a crowd of 16,000. A few days later, President Johnson and U.S. Senate candidate Robert Kennedy campaigned in Brooklyn to crowds who chanted, Save the Brooklyn Navy Yard! But a few days after Johnson's landslide victory, the Pentagon announced that the Brooklyn Yard would be closed immediately. McNamara pointed to the Pentagon's most recent study, 
which concluded that Brooklyn was about equal to Philadelphia when it came to industrial capabilities, but somewhat behind Philadelphia as well as Boston in terms of efficiencies. So one answer to the question of why Brooklyn is that McNamara's number crunchers ultimately reached an objective decision against it. But it seems likely that the events in 1963 and 64 might well have played out differently under slightly changed circumstances. As the political scientist Linda Carlson has suggested, the New York congressional delegation, although still the largest on Capitol Hill, was at that time comparatively undisciplined and ambivalent about saving their naval shipyard compared to their counterparts from other states. A more forceful effort might not have moved McNamara, but might well have influenced President Johnson, a thoroughly political animal. It's also possible to imagine Johnson intervening in favor of Brooklyn in 1964 had the newly elected senator from New York been a true friend and political ally instead of Robert Kennedy, a man Johnson infamously regarded with suspicion and resentment. Once the decision to close Brooklyn was made, its shutdown happened with remarkable speed, especially in comparison to those that would eventually occur elsewhere, as at Portsmouth, Boston, and Philadelphia. The Brooklyn Yard site was sold to the city of New York for $22 million, and since the 1960s has been run by private-public partnerships, including the current site manager, the Brooklyn Navy Yard Development Corporation. In the 1970s and 80s, despite some commercial shipbuilding activity at the site, the loss of the Navy Yard was still painfully felt by thousands of former yard workers and their families, and by the local economy as a whole. More recently, as some listeners are aware, large new investments to revitalize the site appear to have paid off. The site's become home to dozens of new businesses, collectively employing more than 10,000 people, nearly as many as the number who worked there on the eve of the Navy Yard closing. Half a century later, the site appears to have made at least a semi-successful economic transition, from military-industrial to civilian commercial space. And today, fewer and fewer people have first-hand memories of the Navy Yard, which for so many decades stood as one of the biggest industrial sites in the city and one of the most important parts of the U.S. military-industrial complex. As I've tried to suggest, by remembering the Brooklyn Yard, we can not only gain a better appreciation for the industrial and labor history of Greater New York, but also a richer understanding of national, political, and military history. A product of the founding generation's effort to provide national security to an infant nation, the Brooklyn Yard survived the rise of private corporate power in the Gilded Age, and was transformed and bolstered by progressives and New Dealers in the era of the World Wars. Its death in 1965 may be seen not just as one important part in the story of New York City's deindustrialization and that of the nation, but also as a leading indicator of a broader trend toward privatization, part of what today is called economic neoliberalism, which of course became even stronger in the decades after its closing. Brooklyn Navy Yard, in other words, is a relatively small place, but one with a very big story. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of our podcasts at gothamcenter.org and sign up to our mailing list to find out about other programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History.